This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. Experience the empowering feeling of the Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Lease the 2024 RX350 Premium All-Wheel Drive for $5.28 a month for 36 months with $49.99 to its signing. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Call 1-800-USA-LEXUS for important lease offer and pricing details. Not all customers will qualify. Offer in the Lexus Eastern area and it's April 1st, 2024. Hey everyone, on this episode of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, I'm joined by Jay Weinberg, drummer of the band Slipknot and fellow goaltender. This interview was a blast because we found so many similarities between what Jay does in Slipknot to what I used to do in hockey, from meal preferences to the mental focus necessary to put on a good show. He grew up in New Jersey and was a Devils fan, but since moving to Nashville, he's now diehard Predators. And you'll hear why he has a soft spot for the Flyers. Enjoy! Hockey actually came way first, like way before music kind of came into my life. Um, uh, growing up on the East Coast, it was really, I mean, you know, during the winter months, especially when it would, it would get cold enough where like ponds would freeze over and stuff. That was the predominant thing that we would do when I was, when I was a kid. Um, I tried other sports when I was way young, maybe like four five and six, you know, baseball didn't really take to me. Soccer didn't really take to me. Football didn't really take to me. Um, but uh, but one day, um, God, I think maybe like 98 or 99, um, I believe this is how it went down, uh, the New Jersey Devils were having a uh, some sort of like intramural um, competition thing, like between, you know, there was like guys that were dressed in the red jersey, guys that were dressed in the white jersey, and it was like this big kind of, you know, fan event. And I believe they had reached out to my dad to do a uh, like a some kind of celebrity coach uh, sort of um, thing, and had him on the sidelines and you know talking about whatever. And and so they reached out to him just because like we were local people, you know, local to New Jersey, and he was a musician, um, is a musician. And so they they contacted him, and he brought me along for the ride. And I had never you know experienced hockey before that, but I remember being like right up close and having like, uh, I have a vivid memory of when I was like nine years old and Sheldon Sure kept, he like came right over the boards and like nearly knocked my, like my head off with his skate as he was like coming over the boards at this event. And, uh, and it was pretty, you know, it was super in your face and super energetic. And I, I really remember that. And then we started going to games, started going to devil's games in 1999 and just became immediately hooked. And, uh, you know, it was it was the first sport that really grabbed me like that. So uh, hockey came much uh, much sooner than music really came into my life. Like I was a I was a casual music listener, but um, it wasn't until like uh, Bruce had gotten the E Street Band back together uh, shortly thereafter in in 1999 um, that I had started to really pay attention to music and its place in my life. Um, and then much, you know, years later, I would actually start playing music, but hockey came first for sure. Yeah. Did you latch onto any specific players? I mean, you mentioned Surrey and he's in, he's a larger than life personality, but was there anybody yeah. from the devils that truly made you a fan and maybe drove you towards goaltending? Yeah. Well, I was, uh, 
you know, I became a Devils fan kind of like I was I was in like the spoiled golden age of, of being a Devils fan coming in in the late 90s. So, you know, God, off the top of my head, you've got Bobby Holik, Randy McKay, Martin Brodeur, Scott Stevens, Ken Danico, Scott Niedermeyer. Like you go down, you know, uh, uh, the A-line with Jason Arnott and Peter Sikora and Patrick Eliash. Like it was... I mean, what, we were, like, so privileged as hockey fans to be able to go to, you know, we had season tickets as a family. Like, we started going because we just loved the devil so much. And to be able to see players on that level every night, like, that's insane, especially uh, looking back on it now and looking at, like, how the landscape of hockey, NHL hockey in particular, has, has changed. I mean, it's insane. That was, like, a total all-star team lineup. And... Um, so to be able to, you know, see that and grow up watching, you know, arguably the, one of the greatest goaltenders of all time to, uh, um, you know, with Martin Brodeur, like every night watching that, that was super uh, impactful on me. And I think I've always gravitated towards that, like, last line of defense position. I think as goalies, like, we have something in our brains that's just a little bit off that, you know, that, that really gets something out of that pressure. Um, I think that translates to drums as well, you know? Um, you could often make the comparison that a drummer has a lot of the same kind of responsibilities that a goaltender does. Um, but, uh, but yeah, growing up as a Devils fan, getting to watch Marty play uh, every night, and even in that era, like, you know, on any given night, you could be watching Patrick Waugh, could be watching Ed Belfour, um, you know, Dominic Hasek, like these are, these are like legendary names in like night in and night out. That's crazy to watch. So being a young kid, um, I definitely gravitated towards the goaltender. Um, there was so much like expression in it too, cause you could kind of make it a little bit more individualistic with like your, the design of the pads, the design of your mask and stuff. There's a little more character than, than the other players. And I think I kind of gravitated towards that. It's a creative position to me. That's when people always say, Hey, goalies are weird or different. And I'm, I'm like, well, you know what? There's superstitious guys that do crazy things that play forward too. But I think it's really just because so many of us are creative you know i mean i used to design masks and gear you know were you the same way when you started getting into it that you'd go to the the website and design all your gear and really get super into the details 100 percent. yeah i would paint like when i when i started playing goaltender um when i was about nine years old i would paint my own masks uh you know i'd get like just a just a, a white one or a black one and start painting it myself and and stuff so yeah i i love the creativity of it i love the creativity of how you could play the position and I think growing up watching like my I think my favorite goaltender even though you know I was very partial to, to Marty Brodeur I was I really loved uh, watching Dominic Hasek play uh, which is actually kind of crazy which is another story that I got to meet him recent really recently like a couple like two weeks ago I actually went to um, a, fam a great uh, family friend of ours named Frank Brown was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And so we went to uh, the Hall of Fame induction ceremony um, that was in Toronto a couple weeks ago, right before the last Slipknot tour. And uh, and Dominic Hasek, I just randomly ran into him, like not even at the event, but just randomly ran into him. And I was oh, like, man, how cool is that? Like, I, I, you know, I didn't want to be too much of a punisher, but I was like, man, I, I wore 39 because of you. And like, you know, I, I want you watch videos of him playing now and it's so unorthodox, but it was like so crazy calculated too. And the way the creative way that he approached being a goaltender, it was like, you know, I mean, it was unlike anybody 
had had approached doing it like before or since you know like I think that comes from maybe where he where he came from like you know growing up in uh in the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia perhaps when he was you know growing up like um I love the creativity of that and and seeing how you could use your body in all these different ways and and uh to you know to just try to stop the puck you know that's uh there's no wrong way as long as you're stopping the puck there's no wrong way to do shit you know so that was kind of really eye-opening to me to watch a player like that yeah and his his goalie coach when he was in buffalo was mitch corn who i became close with when i was drafted by the predators years ago when he was there and even though i never ended up with him we've stayed really close and i learned so much from mitch via dominic kind of intertwined in how a lot of it had to do with aerial angle of the puck, right? You're just trying to get as close to the puck as you can. And that Mitch truly knew that Dom had, he knew what he was doing. This wasn't by chance. It wasn't random. He had a really set system, but so many people thought that he was just out there flopping around. Right. And, you know, to us as goalies, you obviously picked up on right away. There's a method to this, you know? (laughs) Yeah. There was kind of like he would have the last fake out on a player. If a player was deking him one way, he would almost make the player deke that way. And when the player thought he could just slip it in, you know, behind him, he would then do that crazy thing where he would wrap his glove hand, you know, behind himself. And it's like he had the last say. He had the last word was like, I'm going to make you do this move. And then the player would almost bite on him. And then he would have that last move, like, coming back around his head, which I've never seen anybody do that. But he did that time and time again, whether it was like a breakaway or whatever. Like, that was kind of one of his routine moves that looks totally random, but you're like, he keeps doing it. There's something that he's he means to do this. Yeah, and it's it's so fun to watch how people have discovered those type of moves because you'll see it you'll still see it today at occasion, but you really hadn't seen it before him. So we all learned from each other and taking things, putting it in the toolbox. I can remember seeing it from him the first time and I tried to do the same thing later on in a high school game and it actually worked. And I thought, man, this is this is real, you know. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. You talked. You you talked earlier though how about music came later to you. Was it something you expected to come in life? I mean, your dad's a, obviously a very famous musician. So, were you more into hockey, thinking this is it, or did eventually they both kind of go parallel to one another? Yeah, it started off hockey was it. Like that was that was everything to me from about nine till I was like fourteen. That was it. I was like trying to carve my way into playing hockey. You know, probably wanted to play in college. Hopefully, you know, turn that into something I could do professionally. Um, back when I was that age, that was like I was a one track mind with that. But when I started to get into the kind of music that I, I started to discover around that age it quickly, I I felt this kind of meter starting to tip where my interest was uh, being pulled away from hockey. Um, You know, and when I was younger, I tried guitar and I took lessons and it made it like school and I didn't want to go to school after school. So I didn't, you know, I didn't stick with that very long. Same thing with bass guitar. Uh, But we had a drum set in our basement um, that wasn't even set up, you know, and I just kind of set it up one day and it just started hammering away um because i started liking you know punk bands and and hardcore bands and stuff like that and just trying to play along to records that i liked and i started to really like it and i felt an aptitude for it and um and so that started to take up more of my headspace uh going from like 14 to 15 and by the time i was like 15 you know i was playing in high school 
Um, hadn't met, hadn't made the varsity team yet. I was still playing JV. Um, and I was doing that a lot, you know, practicing every day and, and playing games like twice a week or three times a week or something. Um, and I played travel hockey a lot too before that. Um, but then when music started to come into my life and drums specifically, and I started playing drums, it got to the point where I was like showing up to the rink with drumsticks in my hands. And like before a game, I'd be like drumming on my pads. And it got to the point where I was just like kind of looking at my situation. I was just like, what am I doing? Like, I'm not even, I'm not invested in this hockey team anymore. I think I, I think I, I just like, I didn't have a great experience with playing hockey for my high school. Just didn't see eye to eye with people. Not really that great of a community of, of players. And so it was a multitude of things that just kind of pushed me into focusing on on just drums. And I remember clearly the day that I had to, um, it was like the last day I could have called my coach um, to basically not report to summer training camp. And I was like, I made the call and I was like, hey coach, I, I, I'm not gonna play for the team. I, you know, I'm going to follow this music thing and I have a band and, and blah, blah, blah. And he was bummed, but, uh, but understood. And I think could see it that I, that I wasn't as invested in it anymore. And I'm really glad I made that choice because it really felt like I was going to juggle two things and I was going to be okay at both, you know, at best. And, uh, I felt like my calling was just like, just pursue music, you know, a hundred percent. That's where my heart was. And, uh, and that's where it still is, you know, although I have a, you know, deep appreciation for hockey still play um and and still love it it's uh you know it's the right call at the time so you kind of had to prioritize things did you have a favorite set of equipment when you were younger because you talk about the creativity and we grew up in kind of the golden age we're a little bit different in age i'm 36 you're a few years younger but we had the chance to have all those classic designs you know like the vaughn legacies the bauer reactors on down the list did you have a favorite set from that era yeah, so I started out, I think, on a on a like a hand-me-down pair of Bauer reactors, and then uh, went from that to a pair of Brian's. Oh God, I don't know the model. I'm very fuzzy. I think when I was like 12, I got a pair of Brian's, and I was growing really quickly. Maybe 11, I got the Brian's, and then when I was like 13, I got my last pair of pads, which were Vaughn Velocities. Um, and those were like the ones that like, you know, myself and my goalie buddies, we were all like picking out, you know, magazines, like, look at these Vaughn velocities. Like it was, the, there was, a, those were the sickest pads you could get. And I remember I had to wait like a year and a half to get them because they were so like backordered or whatever, but I got them. And that was, that was my last pair. I, I remember I, I had ordered them and, uh, and I thought it was so cool that I could get my name stitched on it and they spelled my name wrong. Come on. Yeah, they spelled it with a U instead of an E. And, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it still felt, still felt really cool. And they, like, kind of matched my team's, uh, what do you call it, my, you know, my team's colors at the time. And, uh, oh, it was sick. I mean, yeah, I, I love that. Like, I, I loved, like you said, just the creativity of it and what you could do to really represent your team but kind of have that unique little um, uh, take on it. You know, I, I always looked up to, to goalies that were, like, I don't know, took, took like special interest in that, you know? Yeah. Uh, you're in a position now being drummer for truly one of the biggest bands. I mean, biggest metal band maybe in existence today. And you talked on it briefly about 
how you feel that pressure in some ways, maybe, or you feel that desire to be the backbone of things. Do you still feel that bit of twinge before you go on stage, the nervousness, you know, anything that you felt in goaltending? Is it similar to what you do as a drummer? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, you know, it's, it's like a level of being like almost petrified, you know, before every, every show it never changes for me, you know? Yeah. I definitely get that, um, that nervous energy before a show. Um, I think that's what keeps me driven to do it. You know, it's to always rise to, um, you know, my own expectations of myself, uh, the band's expectation of me and, and stuff like that, you know, it's, it's a lot like a team. I, I, I often kind of say to, you know, to friends who aren't very familiar with Slipknot, it's almost like in preparing for it, it almost feels like more of a sports team than a, than a musical band. We've all, all got a unified thing, you know, our, the coveralls are our, our team uniform and, and we, have, we have our team logos and, you know, but the, the individual expression is in our masks and, and that's where everybody kind of has their own thing. And, um, and of course our individual instruments and stuff, but yeah, the preparation is really, a, it's very, very similar, you know, routines, um, you know, eating the same thing at the same time, uh, before a show, I, I, I get to that level with it just from my training as, as a goaltender, you know, what is your typical pre-show pre-show meal? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, people make fun of me cause it's like every night I just, I eat the same thing just cause anything else will like. It could kind of upset my stomach and, and the nerves get in there and everything, but I know that um, a grilled chicken breast, some uh, uh, steamed broccoli, and um, and a, like a big sweet potato. You are a hockey player to the core. Yeah, exactly. That's you are right. literally eating a pregame spread for an NHL team before every Slipknot show. Exactly, yeah. And it's like, you know, I, <laughs> I got that protein, I got the slow-burning carbs, it's, it's everything, you know, so... Um, so yeah, I try to do that when I can, um, if we're on a long tour and we have, um, you know, we're fortunate we will have like the same caterers from show to show. Um, so luckily, you know, I can, I can ask for that. Um, and it's just consistent. Uh, other times when you're bouncing from festival to festival, you're kind of at the mercy of just what's available on site. Um, but I try to keep it to pretty much, you know, places are, are generally pretty good about like there's a chicken option and some kind of, you know, starchy option or something like yeah. that. I mean, you're in the big leagues. You guys can do that. It's not like bouncing around on a tour bus where you're just getting grease wheels after every show. There's, there's so many similarities to like minor league hockey and being a small touring band and being yeah. in the NHL and a major touring band that I've, you know, like Brian Fair from Shadows Falls, a friend of mine now, and we've talked about it before how, you know, our worst fears were always bus crashes and things like that. And we have so many things in common, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, the more and more I'm, I've been, you know, fortunate to like meet uh, some like players that I really look up to in the NHL, there are a lot of, of similarities and even, you know, yeah, definitely playing, you know, touring in vans and stuff. Um, the grind at, I feel like at any level, you know, if it's Slipknot or, or, or any, really any level, um, you know, there's always an element of a grind to it. It's, it, and that's what keeps it, you know, it's what kind of keeps you grounded in it and committed to the work of it. Is that it, like, it doesn't matter what level, you know, you're at or, or whatever. It's like the work is always like the same, you know, it, it, every show is approached the same, whether you're playing in front of five people or, you know, or 50,000 people. It's like every, every, you know, I approach every show like any goaltender or any player would every game. It's like, you know, it doesn't matter who's in the stands. You still have to perform 
um, you know, for, for what you do. And, you know, whether it's the craft of, you know, trying your best to win a game or your craft of trying to put on an awesome show, it's like, you know, the audience almost becomes incidental or the, the factors around the touring becomes incidental where it's, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in a, in a bus, in a plane, in a van, in a car, traveling by train, whatever, you know, the show is the show. And, um, and to me, that's where like the fact that it's always a grind is kind of inspiring to know that, you know, even, even in, if you're in a band like Metallica or Iron Maiden, like there's still an element of what you're doing that is a grind. That's hard work. And, um, and that's inspiring to look up to, you know, that there are, there are still bands that are killing it today at the largest levels that it's like, they're still doing it, the punk rock grind, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I, and I find that's true even at the, you know, at the NHL level, it's like, they're definitely, you know, um, when you reach a certain level and you're fortunate to, you know, you don't have to worry necessarily about losing, you know, you not sleeping for five days in a row and shit like that. Um, you know, but the, the grind, is able to kind of like find you in different ways and you can kind of, you know, it, it, it allows you, at least I find in my experience, the, you know, the ways of traveling, you know, comfortably by a bus or, or whatever that allows you to throw even more of yourself, uh, because you're well rested and, and stuff or as well rested as you can be, you can throw more of yourself into the performance, you know? And, and so that's, that's kind of how I view it. And, and definitely like, you know, I, I don't necessarily know exactly like AHL, you know, minor league affiliates and stuff and the NHL and stuff, how the grind kind of compares to touring in clubs versus arenas and stadiums and shit like that. But, but yeah, it is, it is all relative. Um, but it's like the same, you know? Yeah. I mean, I look at bands like a Slayer that's been doing this for 35 years. I mean, those guys are 55 years old, almost 60. Tom Array is pushing like they're retiring. They've had enough. And I get that. Like, it's not easy to do. There's a lifespan to this, even for hockey players. It seems like you get to 30, 35 kids moving around, you know, I could have kept playing this year, but I'd had enough. I was just ready to do it. Uh, it's it's a different animal, and unless you're really in it, I don't think you can appreciate it. You know, it's it's just hard to describe to people. Well, then you get the you know the Yarmer Yagers and the E Street bands of the world, and it's like, well, these guys are pushing seventy something and playing four hour shows, and this guy's almost fifty and he's playing you know professional hockey in a sense. So it's like there's some freaks of nature out there for sure, and it's wild to just watch them go. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, it's um it's hard for people to keep up you know like it's uh it's a testament to to a band like slipknot that's existed for so long at such an energetic clip you know and it's it's um you know to me i, I get inspired every day by being able to you know do whatever i can to contribute to that um kind of forward movement and that it's still you know it's not you know, Slipknot by no means is a is any sort of a legacy band. You know, it's still active. It's still 100% forward moving. This new music we're inspired by. You know, present day things that are going on within the band. So, so yeah, it's it's really rad to to see how bands that have that longevity um, to still see whatever ways that they can push it forward is uh, you know it's inspiring from the inside of it. You know. You ended up with Bruce Springsteen and your dad, Max, was his drummer in the E Street Band before he did other things, too. But did you ever expect that to happen? I can't I'm trying to wrap my head around. I mean, you're a Jersey kid, obviously. It kind of fits the bill. Were you drawn to his music in the first place 
or when you did it, was it something that you just thought, this is a cool opportunity and I'm going to run with this? Did it all kind of tie together? Yeah, exactly the latter. Um, I never expected that. Much like, you know, anything that's happened before that or since that, like none of anything I've ever expected for myself. It was certainly circumstantial and like A, that led to B, that led to C, all the way to Z. Like it's it's just kind of, you know, it's it's been a crazy journey uh, so far for sure. But with the Bruce stuff, you know, that happened in the way that I had started playing drums when I was like 14-ish, started really taking it seriously when I was like 15. And then the first time I ever got up on stage with Bruce, I was 17 years old. So um, you're only three years into being a drummer and you're playing with Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. That's um, unbelievable. Oh, by the way, our radio play-by-play guy, Dave, Dan Duva is a Jersey guy. Our TV play-by-play guy with the Vegas Golden Knights, Dave Goshers, also. They're both huge Springsteen fans. So when I told them that we were recording, they were like super jealous. Great. So yeah, it, you know, it was a really, it was really a lot of me just kind of holding up when I was in high school and and just learning, you know, by learning the mechanics of of drumming and just you know, just woodshedding every day by myself, playing along to you know records that I really liked, and you know, once I got into heavy metal, really I started playing drums in like the late winter and played heavy metal just to warm up because I had no heat in our shed. You know, so I'd be playing along to Metallica and Slayer and Slipknot records when I was a kid, you know, just trying to stay warm. But yeah, you know, that that led to a really fast, like, learning curve, trying to play, you know, complex, intricate music, like, as my first foray. Like, I kind of, I kind of went from trying to cover, like, Ramon's songs almost overnight to trying to play to, like, Dimu Borgir records and stuff. Oh, there's a bit of a difference, man. <laughs> it's like, hey, you know, why not Why not try, you know? And, um, and, you know, where I landed was probably somewhere in the middle of all that kind of craziness and taking inspiration from all these bands. Um, and hopefully, you know, it kind of factored into my playing. And then uh, basically how I ended up playing with Bruce, you know, it became kind of an extension of just what was a one-time thing. Uh, all the guys in the band, um, after the band had had uh, split up in the late eighties, all the guys had children, you know? And, um, and so I was one of like the last kids of, you know, the guys in the band, I was born in 1990 and, um, you know, they got the band back together and, uh, they would have some, some of the kids of the bands, like they would play instruments, uh, some of the kids of the guys in the band and, um, they would get up and play, like my sister played keyboards, with them, um, you know, some other uh, of the of the kids would get up and play guitar, um, stuff like that. Uh, and then I was like the last one who hadn't done it yet. And my dad was like, "Oh, you should get up and, and play a song with us. Maybe it's soundcheck or something." And I was like, "Yeah, maybe it's soundcheck." Because during a show, if I'm messing up, like you can't just pull me down in the mix, you know, like <laughs> it'd be obvious. And, they can't pull you. It's not like being a goalie. No, no, no. Um, so I, you know, I was like deathly afraid, but so, um, I played one song with them at soundcheck, uh, for a show when I was 17 and Bruce was like, that sounded great. You should play that during a show. And so I tried it with them during the show and that was my one time I was ever going to do it. I could say I did it. I never had to do it again. Um, and that was a giant stadium in New Jersey. Um, about half a year later, 
when uh, my dad was still with Conan O'Brien on the TV show, it switched from the late night program to the Tonight Show, and everything moved to California. Uh, the show was about was an hour earlier, and um, it was a whole new format. So basically, he had to be in two places at once um, because Bruce had scheduled a European tour to start the day before the Tonight Show started. So it was this scheduling conflict, and they were tossing around ideas with how to, you know overcome this who could you know does max have to be at the you know the conan show and and uh who could you know who could take his place with bruce for for a period of time if it had to come to that and um bruce asked my dad i think more so as like from as like father to father like would jay like crack under pressure of this if we were to ask him to play with us like it's way more than playing one song. You know, these are like three and a half, four hour shows for, you know, 60, 70,000 people a night. Um, you and know. your dad obviously goes, yeah, he's been a goalie. He can handle this. Well, and, and that's actually, that's literally like, I think that was his thought process was because really? me grow up, you know, playing as a goalie, getting used to high pressure situations. Um, and I think thriving on that, you know, and I think kind of like using that to motivate my performance, I think he was like, yeah, that'll probably translate into his drumming, but we had no idea. They had no idea. Um, you know, I had played in bands in high school, but nothing on the level of that certainly. So it was a complete experiment, a uh, testament to, to Bruce and to the band dad for having the faith that I would be able to, you know, somewhat pull that off. And, um, you know, yeah, of course, like the circumstance being what it was, it's, it's not like I was just some guy that then Bruce was like, I, I saw this guy play randomly. Let's ask him if, you know, it's like I was my dad's son and it was a way that I feel like Bruce could keep it within the family, literally. And um, and so that was like that break for me, you know, was was having that opportunity and that crazy stars aligning kind of experience that it worked out that way and um never did i ever expect that it would lead you know to these other bands that i played with and that it would lead to slipknot in some way ever never did i ever anticipate that but it's always been like you know one foot in front of the other never really looking past the present task at hand you know um especially when the task was as monumental as like okay, I have to learn like several hundred Bruce Springsteen and E Street Band songs and figure out how to play it in my own way, not, you know, try to be some kind of carbon copy of my dad because I'm not him and that's not interesting to me. That's not interesting to the band's fans. Um, so I had to, you know, come in and, and kind of do it in my own way and really just take what I had as experience in three years to kind of fold into into doing it. And... Um, and yeah, that's really the, the attitude that I've taken with me ever since. But um, it was all from that one, you know, I, I feel like Bruce kind of took the attitude of like, well, he can play one song and we feel like we got a vibe from him based on one song. And um, and that's always been like my attitude, with, like no matter who has been, who I play, you know, who I've been playing with, you know, if I feel like if I can play one song and and, you know, show people what I've got, that's you know that's my my in you know that's that's how i can try to prove myself to uh to show that you know if somebody wants me to be in their uh in their project you know it's always been about just showing up much like a goaltender just trying to you know do whatever i can to to prepare to you know i, I think 
you know, luck is just preparedness meeting opportunity. You know, you can have all the luck in the world, but if you're not preparing yourself continually and not um, setting yourself up for success in the ways that you can control by controlling your craft, by learning what you can about what you do, you know, that's that's showed up time and time again in my life. Um, but yeah, it definitely, uh, the first trial by fire being kicked into the deep end of, of music uh, was with Bruce and the E Street Band. I've read the story about how you met Slipknot originally. And it relates back to your dad again, from what I read at least, and going to Ozfest and and meeting them. But what I'm curious about here is that I would have taken your dad to be a pretty straightforward rock and roll type of guy. That maybe some of like these metal bands and genres would be outside his realm. Is he a fan of a lot of different types of music, and that's what led to you doing it? I mean, because going to Ozfest is not a normal deal for a lot of people and really what was that experience like seeing them meeting them the first time when you were a young kid yeah well it was always expressed to me by my parents that you know it's it's very important to not be um sheltered uh musically or to any art really and just to try to get something out of everything and uh you know, I feel that's what makes my dad a well-rounded musician. That's what, you know, he grew up or he grew he he grew up around people like that that loved everything and I feel like that's a te- that's a um you you know, you can really filter that out of what Bruce and the E Street Band have have done um, you know, at least since my dad's been involved since 74. It, it's so eclectic and it's not just one thing. It's such an amalgam of, of all these things. It's, you know, it is rock and roll, but it's soul. It's got some funk elements. It's got, you know, uh, storytelling. It's got, it's got all of this, you know? So, um, they were fans of, you know, everything from, um, you know, the Dave Clark five to the Beatles, to the Rolling Stones, to, uh, Roy Orbison, to, you know, um, Jimi Hendrix and, uh, all that, all that sort of stuff. So, uh, it was important for me, I think growing up, um, the first five years of my life, I never even heard like, like electric guitar or anything. My mom, uh, like basically raised me on classical music. And it's funny because I've actually read there's like certain studies between people that were raised with classical music and how people interpret metal music. Like the brain processes them in like very similar ways. It's probably um, why I'm into it too. I played cello a little bit in in elementary school. It's So that's what I was exposed to a lot when I was younger, I guess. Yeah, there you go. And, and, I, and I find that, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of, uh, there are some like string quartets or string ensembles that actually do cover albums of metal records. I love interpretations of that. There's a, um, there's a great brass band that does an entire Misfits cover album. It's all like, it's all like swing jazz lounge uh, covers of the Misfits. Um, but, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that, that there's a lot of similarities between the ways that you can, like, gravitate from from something as, you know, um, long-running history as, like, classical music and, you know, modern metal. Um, but so, uh, going back to your question about the OzFest thing, um, yeah, it was always very important for, you know, that my, pam- my family stressed on me just being open to everything. And... Uh, so as I was like starting to find out what I liked in music, and I think I got some hand-me-down stuff from my parents that they were trying to test the waters. Like my mom, 
uh, I think passed down like some Nirvana to me, some Hendrix to me, and some of the things that were a little bit more, you know, just distorted guitar and kind of crazy things. Um, you know, the heavy, heaviest thing I was into at the time when I was like nine years old was like The Who or something like that. Um, but then, you know, the uh, the Conan O'Brien, the, the TV show had been on for a while, and uh, Slipknot came on promoting their first album. And uh, and my dad, you know, he saw bands day in and day out and, and largely, you know, unremarkable things. But uh, he saw this band that was just like, holy shit, they, these guys wear crazy outfits, they wear crazy masks, this music is unlike anything I've ever heard, but they're super cool guys, and they invited us to a show, because I think they went up to him and were like, hey, you know, you're so-and-so, and, -so. and I, I, he might have came up to them like, wow, you guys are insane, and, and, and they were like, hey, if you ever want to bring your family to a show, like, we're coming back, you know, this summer on OzFest, why don't you, why don't you bring your family? And they were mega intense at that time, too. Yeah, like yeah. I'd listen to kind of heavy music and Metallica and stuff like that, and I still love Deftones to this day. But like the whole new metal movement was kind of in my wheelhouse because I hadn't really listened to anything that wasn't on the radio yet. And then I heard Slipknot and Fear Factory, and my eyes just went like this, right, like huge, because it was so different and so much more intense. Yeah, it was it was very eye opening for me because it was unlike anything I'd ever heard or seen or you know smelled or experienced in my life. You know, so um, seeing them at a very early age and and meeting them too, like on the same day, that was really eye opening to me. Was that it's like okay, you know, these guys have this insane art, this insane music that is system overload for me. But speaking to them and hanging out with them, they never treated me like a kid. Um, you know, they, they, I always felt like I was on like a level playing field talking to them uh, because they saw it meant something to me. They saw that I connected with their music and it, wasn't, it didn't matter that I was like nine or 10 years old at the time. They could see the wheels turning and that I really connected to what they were doing even though I didn't know exactly like what it meant to me or, or, or why I was connecting to it. I just knew that I was. And so whenever, you know, we, we stayed in touch from that day forward, really. Um, and, uh, and I would come out to see them every time they came uh, through town and they saw me, you know, every, every time I would come to see them, I'd be sporting some shirt of a band that's a little more underground. And they saw that I was like doing my homework and I was learning Um and I think, and I, you know, they, I think they even knew that like they were the catalyst for, um, getting me into the, the type of music that, you know, this community kind of is all about. So, um, yeah, that was the, the very, very beginning, um, of me learning what heavy metal was about. And that sent me on a whole journey of learning, you know, all the different, um, subcategories of of whatever and you know it gets to a certain level where you can't even pay attention to all that because it gets too confusing and you know music is just music um but uh but yeah that was a huge huge day in my life where it took a complete left turn and i was still playing that was like my formative hockey days too you know 1999 2000 that was like my my main kind of hockey playing era so i think it took that like germinating in my head once i saw a band like that, that I was like, I want to do that. And then it took me like years to figure out that I would even approach that, you know? I mean, you, what you do now is an intense physical workout. I watched the double bass and what you do with your hands. 
is that aspect of it really fulfilling to you and kind of relates again to goaltending that it is such a physical uh, instrument to play? For sure. Yeah. I think um, there's definitely a part of it that makes it again, like it's almost, it almost feels like a full contact sport when you're up there playing. Um, Cause it takes so much, it takes so much physical preparation, takes so much mental preparation. Um, you know, throughout a long tour, a marathon summer tour that we do for like two months on end, it's like, yeah, you really got to, you know, you got to do the smart things for your body. Um, I kind of have to be a bubble boy uh, to a certain extent, like do things that are just smart for myself and stay away from things that are necessarily risky. Like, you know, I, I can't play hockey uh, while I'm active with the band. Uh, that's definitely a no-no. Um, yeah. that's, that's been given to you. You can't do this, Jay. <laughs> yeah, a little bit self-imposed, maybe a little conversations with guys like no you're not going to go ice skating in russia even though you really want to you are not um which is you know which is fine uh to me because you know what we do is is the most important thing in my life for sure so it's like can't can't risk it you know and and i i feel i feel like as you know as anybody who has a super physical thing you know you got to make sure you're in tip-top shape doing it and and at such a level where it's like i, I can't play you know, night in, night out, if I'm tired or if I'm, you know, not taking care of myself physically or, or something like that, like you gotta, you gotta do it and you gotta, you gotta maintain, you know, your health to perform at a, at a certain level. So I definitely, you know, the physicality of what we do is super important to me. It's always been important to me, the aspect of drums, like even when I, I played in bands that like our music wasn't necessarily all that complex. I would set my drums up in a way that made it very complex to where like my cymbals are like, you know, four feet high or something like that. And my, you know, everything is very spread apart. So I have to be physical, you know, so you're challenging yourself to do it too. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there, you know, there's always an aspect of it that makes me want to feel like I'm entering a boxing ring that makes me want, it makes me, gives me the same feeling as when I step up to my kit you know, and our curtain is up, I feel the same way as when I step out onto the ice and I step in my crease like that. It's the exact same feeling, um, you know, because it's going to start, you know, and, and you don't know what kind of every show is very unique, much like every game is very unique. And um, I have a really weird memory where I can like, remember very specific things about like almost every show I've ever played. Um, it's much like that for me playing goalie, I can remember just something from almost every game, it seems like. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, um, there are so many similarities and, uh, and yeah, but with, with Slipknot, you know, playing, playing with Bruce was, um, definitely a unique set of challenges and, and things that I had to overcome in my own playing and, and how I approach things and how I committed myself to it. Um, but Slipknot for sure is its own thing. Like, uh, by far the, the biggest challenge, um, I've ever had in my life, um, in many, many ways, physically, mentally, energetically, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, as difficult as the Bruce stuff was, Slipknot is, is a whole other ballpark, whole other ball of wax. Is it kind of interesting playing with three percussionists? I'm sure it's, that is kind of a different dynamic from most traditional, you know, four or five piece bands. Yeah, Slipknot's a completely unique, um, you know, group of, of musicians, you know, two guitar players, one bass player, a vocalist, two percussionists that also sing, a DJ, a sampler, like there's, you know, there's a lot going on there. So it's a very unique, um, 
you know, group of instruments that works together in a really unique way that is Slipknot. There's really nothing like it on earth. Um, so for me, you know, coming into the project, it was like, I got a, I, I had a lot to learn about the, you know, the ways of the knot really, even though I was so well versed in everything about the band, I knew every song, I knew how to play every song. Um, you know, it was, it was the things that could never even be expressed to somebody who was uh, an intense listener of the band stuff that was never on my radar about the band, even though I knew everything about the band, um, having conversations with like clown about the interaction between myself as the drummer and the two percussionists in the band. It, uh, it never, you know, I remember cause we, we started playing together and the day after we started playing together, we started working on, um, our last album. Um, and we're working on new songs. And I, and I remember having a conversation with clown of like, Hey, so if I'm doing this on the drums and that could give free reign for, you know, the percussion stuff to do this. And he was like, I'm going to stop you right there. Cause that's not how we do things in Slipknot. He's like, you're not, you're not here to be like, here's my drum stuff and here's what you can do on percussion. It's like, that's not what we do. It's like, you do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. You have to totally disregard my existence um, and just follow your path because he's like, I have to, I think he put it in a great way. He's like, I have to jump out of the plane and get, you know, rip the cord on my own parachute. I can't go by what you're saying that I should do. I'm going to do my own thing and you're going to do your own thing you can't even be bothered with what I'm going to try to do because I'll find my way. I'm going to find my way into this song, you know, whether you like it or not, kind of. That's and, <laughs> and to me, that was such an eye-opening conversation because it really allowed me to be like, okay, I have to completely, I can't restrict what I'm going to do while I'm creating a Slipknot song with these guys. I can't focus on what anybody else is going to do. I have to take what I'm going to do to the complete limit and make it almost impossible for any other factors to fill up some kind of sonic space. And then they'll find their way, you know, they'll find their way into the song. That was a huge lesson for me um, in that those guys, they'll just do their own thing. And so it is very interesting, you know, having, having a lot of other percussive elements to it, you know, kegs and marching snare drums and floor toms, kick drums turned upside down all these very like avant-garde ways of, of, you know, playing percussion, but you know, it all, it all makes the sound that, that Slipknot has, you know, it would totally not be Slipknot without it. So it, it was never really an adjustment, but kind of like an exercise in completely, I wouldn't say ignoring it, but driving through it to let those guys exist completely independently of me, but we're all doing something together, you know? Getting into the band was must have been kind of like a Ripper Owens moment in some ways joining it. Have you had a chance to really bond with guys over different things outside of it, whether it's hockey, whether it's other things in life? Have you had those commonalities to to kind of get integrated into the band and despite your gap in age, become close with everybody? Yeah, well, you know, so much of your time on tour is spent off stage, you know, so there's a lot of downtime um, where, you know, you're living in close quarters with each other and and um and you do share a lot of that time much like a team you know traveling together you share a lot of the game you know you share a lot of time together not playing games 
Um, so, you know, over, over the last six years as I've been in the band, um, yeah, definitely, you know, sharing, uh, our collective interests in, you know, different art or, uh, exploring the world and trying to take advantage of where we're at on a day off and be like, Hey, you know, I heard that this painting is at this museum. Let's go check that out or something. Um, you know, great, a great story of, uh, Paul Gray, the, the band's bass player who sadly passed away in 2010. Um, when I used to come to Slipknot shows, I would talk to Paul about hockey. Uh, Paul was a hockey fan, and uh, and that was those were always really great moments that I got to. You know, there were there were there were few, but um, but I had some moments to to talk hockey with uh, with Paul. That was that was really meaningful to me. Um, and yeah, as we've like been on, you know, been on the uh, the road. Like I th- we were on we were on tour this past summer, and. Um, uh, we were in Europe and staying up till like 4 a.m. on the bus watching the playoffs, um, stuff like that was was pretty cool. So I've, uh, there there aren't any like natural hockey fans in the band, um, but I've definitely been uh, trying to make the rounds to uh, you know convert some guys. I think I'm think I'm doing all right, but you know we've we've sometimes gone you know on a day off, go to like a baseball game and and stuff like that. There's some things that you can do as a, you know, a little group, whether it's a couple guys here and there, um, you know, do that to just kind of pass the time and do something fun. Um, but yeah, for sure. A lot of it is, is circled around, you know, music, art, um, less so sports, but, um, yeah, a lot of us, you know, we love walking around a, a, a city that we've never been to before, or maybe a city that we've been to a lot. And we have like our favorite places. Um, that's a pretty cool, a pretty, you know, cool experience of like, I have my favorite coffee shop in, you know, Bremen <laughs> or like, I have, yeah. <laughs> I, what, you know, how lucky are we to be able to do this though? Right. Yeah, for real. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an, it's an amazing opportunity and I'm so thankful that we get to, you know, keep doing it and keep traveling the world and, and, uh, learning more about where we go, learning more about the cultures of where we go. And I think we all have certain levels of, of uh, you know, aptitude for that. Next part here is kind of twofold. First is how you came up with, I'm assuming you did at least, for your design for your Slipknot mask. And then the second part to it is, what did the guys on the, on well, in the band, not I almost said on the team like that, right? But it, what did they think of when they saw your goalie mask that had been painted up like the Slipknot mask. Were they pretty tripped out by that? That's funny. I actually don't. I don't even know if anybody's even, if anybody in the band has even seen that because I. Uh, I found you got to play a show in it if you could pull it off somehow. <laughs> I'm really sick, but yeah. So you know, during my off time uh, from the band after we had done, we had finished uh, touring in support of our last record. Um, I had some time, you know, at home to just kind of regroup from from a long tour. I was like, man, I had a bunch of friends because, you know, living in Nashville, a lot of people got hockey fever after uh, the Preds made their Stanley Cup run. Um, so and you were the resident hockey guy they could ask about. Yeah, kind of. Um, so I so I like, you know, I met some friends. I have a friend who runs a, uh, a guitar shop in town and he and I were like, we got to start a team. So I went like really psychotic with it and started. I, um, he and I started a team together uh, called the Eastside Hellhounds. And, uh, you know, it's just a men's league, uh, team, but we, you know, we would like he, he and I were like on the ice at 6am, like every other day, you know, playing open hockey, getting our chops back. Cause I hadn't played hockey since I had quit playing hockey, but you know, got my pads and I was, I basically had the mindset. I was like, all right, 
I play in a band where I wear a mask. I can't not have my goalie mask be my, you know, I, I gotta have it be my Slipknot mask in some way. So, um, so yeah, I contacted a really got a really uh, talented guy named Dave Freed uh, who um, painted my mask and uh, uh, my goalie mask. That is, and um, yeah, but the uh, you know my my mask for "We Are Not Your Kind" kind of came as just a, a very um, subtle evolution, you know, from from my gray chapter mask really. Um, which started out sort of at the same time, like uh, Alex, our bass player, and I um, sort of started out as the new guys, uh, and we kind of had a new guy mask. And it was interesting to me that, like, over the course of that tour and su supporting the Grey Chapter, um, mine became much more mine, and his became much more his in totally natural ways, like totally organic ways. And mine was just decomposing. I've only had the one mask. Um, and it just, you know, fell apart, but fell apart in a cool looking way that it kind of took on its own character. And um, so as we were making this new record and feeling how the new songs were making us feeling that all, you know, over the course of three years factored into how I was going to approach, you know, making my new mask and tearing away certain elements, kind of making it almost seem like you submerged that old mask in bleach and it went through a kind of a cleansing ritual and it was uh you know a little bit cleaner a little bit sharper and um i was a big fan of how you know the band from um from record to record much like almost from like season to season you would see a goaltender switch up a, a mask or a pad setup or something like that i liked how from record to record or within even within a record cycle um, guys in Slipknot would sort of evolve the, the way that their mask was, you know, from the beginning of it. That was always really interesting to me. So, um, you know, it was, it was just kind of like, all right, this is, you know, my um, second album with the band. So, you know, I didn't want to keep the mask the same. It's got to change a little bit as we all change as people. And um, so kind of reflected the, the way that the album was taking shape, the way the songs were uh, were sounding. I feel like it was a, a more refined um, uh, direction uh, that we had taken with We Are Not Your Kind as it was on the Grey Chapter. And that's just, you know, the nature of playing a couple hundred shows together. Um, I had not played a single show with Slipknot before I made an album with Slipknot, um, which is kind of pecul peculiar to do that, you know, because the show dictates so much of what this band is. Um, you know, records are great. Um, music videos are great, but everything about Slipknot is on stage. It's nothing without the, the live show, that's for sure. So, you know, making a record and then playing several hundred shows, that will teach me, you know, really what Slipknot is. And that's no education I could have got, I could have had as a fan. Um, I could have, you know, attended every Slipknot show ever and not understood what it was like to really be on stage. And as soon as we started the first show, I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so all of that kind of factored into um, where the new mask uh, went and where it continues to go. You know, it kind of continues to evolve on me. You know, it kind of has its own direction and kind of tells me what it wants, you know. So uh, so I'm sure, you know, from the from our conversation today, it'll it'll change, you know, in some kind of some kind of way over the next few years. 
with the new album, We Are Not Your Kind, do you feel like you're really hitting your stride in the band? I mean, like you said before, the the, the Grey chapter, you know, you hadn't toured with them yet at that point, right? So for this album, did you feel like you really got a chance to dig in and because you knew the band better, it drove your playing to another place, to another level? I think, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, that's just the nature of what the circumstance was. It's like they, you know... Uh, they needed a guy. They called me. We started working on the new record that, you know, the next day. And so that was totally jumping into the fire. And really, um, for me, you know, my role in that process was figuring out how to be the drummer in Slipknot. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the songs we made. I'm proud of the record that we made. Um, but a lot of that was, you know, finding my footing. And really, you know, to me, you can't find your footing until you play a Slipknot show. Like, that's just the nature of what it is. So much of what we are is just the interaction of the nine guys. That's what it is. So, um, you know, we, we recorded that, al- that album, The Great Chapter, in a way where it was like building it rather than like the only other way I could kind of uh, describe you know, the process that we had for We Are Not Your Kind was like, it was like we were all just throwing in ingredients into this crazy slow cooker of a, you know, of an album. And rather than just kind of building it like sequentially, like like the Grey chapter was, um, it was a lot of learning, you know, the first uh, couple years I was in the band and, and a lot of just like, you know, really just shut the fuck up and learn and, and watch and, and learn, you know, watch guys lead by example. And, um, uh, that all fed into how I felt I would approach it. Like, okay, now that I know what it's like to play, you know, most of the catalog on stage, now this is how I want to approach the, you know, the next album. And, um, you know, it's always an effort to just be better, to just improve. You know, we never want to make an album that's as good or, worse than the one before it you know we always want to just take a step forward in what that means to us you know we want to write songs that are exciting for us so um i was really happy that we took the time to uh to really figure out what each song really meant to us and um what it meant for my contributions on drums and how that could send any song in whatever direction um you know, the, the fact that we had the time, that's one thing we didn't have for the great chapter was time. You know, like we got in there, banged out these songs, and then all of a sudden we were on the road. With this, we took like three years and even more time when we were on tour. We were crafting these songs while we were on tour. So it was a lot of like writing, rewriting, listening for months, rearranging that shit, figuring out every single little nuance of every note to the point where when we sat down as like a core band, um, we learned how to play the album. And that's, that's something that we didn't do for the Grey Chapter, was like sit down as a band and learn our album before we go in and record it. So we went in and um, you know we, were, we would record a, like a series of, uh, of tracks, say we were working on a song. Uh, we would work on a couple uh, tracks of it set to like a metronome with you know some guide vocals that Corey had laid down and then we would just turn that off and just play the song and we wouldn't record to a metronome and that's what you hear on the album it's just us playing as a band because we don't do that live like we don't play to any kind of pre-recorded tracks we don't play to a metronome live we're just a very chaotic fucking intense crazy band and we wanted to capture that with we are now your kind so 
I only would have learned that. I, you know, doesn't matter if I was the most diehard Slipknot fan on the face of the earth. I could never have learned any of that shit without playing that first show and then 200 more shows and then going into the studio to figure out how to do it all over again and do it in my own way and uh, leave my own sort of positive mark on this music. It's funny when you listen to it because it sounds so complete and it sounds really raw, kind of like the first album did in a lot of ways to me. When you were a fan, especially at a young age, was there any particular song or two that really just clicked and you went, this is it? Or that was kind of your anthem to listening to them? It's a great question. Um, when I, I... I remember Spit It Out being really memorable to me. I don't remember like for what reason or something other than probably it was just really catchy to me at a, at a really young age. And then, because I got into the band before Iowa came out, and then when Iowa came out, and considering the you know the nature of where our world, our country was at in two thousand, you know, in late two thousand one, I remember just so much tension just everywhere. Really, a lot like our you know our our global climate today. You know, it's just so tension filled, and and you know, I felt such a release listening to. Um, an album like Iowa or listening to, you know, the first Slipknot album. Um, People Equal Shit held a special place in my heart, you know, stuff like that. Um, Disaster Piece is what did it for me, that super fast double kick on it and just yeah. heavy as could be, you know. <laughs> yeah, all of, all of the stuff really blended into one. I remember um, when MP3 players were really primitive, I had like some kind of like Nike mp3 player that literally only held two albums and so i just had those two albums on it and um and i think that definitely helped me in learning like literally being that those were the only albums i could listen to because that was my mobile like listening device right i think that helped ingrain those songs in my like subconscious to the point where like not that i ever thought about it but then when you know when the band that has these songs could call me and be like, Hey, come here and play these songs. Like, I think I, they were so burrowed deep into my psyche because I literally had a, an MP3 player that only stored those two albums. And I just listened to them like, you know, to death. And I, and I enjoyed it, you know, like I got, I got so much out of it. And to me, and this is how I've always experienced music and, you know, coming into bands that have existed uh, for, you know, that have a history before my joining, which, you know, joining Madball, joining Bruce, um, joining Against Me and stuff. It's like I always wanted to dive deep into learning every little nuance of like, why was this musical choice made for this? And like this was a, this was played in this specific way for a specific reason. And, and I always I always found interest in that. So I wanted to learn you know, like I just wanted to learn every little nuance of every album that I was listening to that meant a lot to me. And I feel like that kind of played its way into then performing these songs and kind of doing my own interpretation of what had been done. Um, you know, learning what had been done, almost like learning the rules so you can break them. You know, it was really like learning the nitty gritty of like every little, you know, what's being played, what's not being played and, and learning the reasons for that. And then having conversations with guys in the band of how those songs came to be. And, you know, I never would have realized the influence of like the dead Kennedys on a song like Eyeless or something like that. But then I'm like, Oh yeah, the, the vocals there are like 
kind of jello biafra-ish you know and then yeah. and then it makes me hear a song like that in a completely different context um so you know being a student of music and even more specifically being a student of slipknot music um you know i feel like that that's been helpful in um now being tasked with you know pushing it forward and uh keeping it inspired in the moment and um and forward thinking not you know not trying to replicate something the band's ever done in the past it's like you know we don't that's not interesting to us to you know recreate an album that's like iowa like iowa exists <laughs> you know we like, we want to do something that's new so that's what i feel like we accomplished with we are not your kind for sure same way with goaltending now that you're rediscovering the position that is it hard for you to learn all the new techniques and and to piggyback on that too what do you love about today's game about today's goaltenders because uh, it's so different than what we grew up with yeah man well it's uh it's certainly more of a challenge um for me now going back to goaltending um and uh really just kind of trying to do it my own way i don't i've, I've taken some instruction to kind of get a little bit of my form back but really it's just a lot about like i i kind of I suppose I have kind of a Neanderthal approach to it now. It's just like I try to cut off the angles as much as I can. I can skate backwards well, and if I can, you know, cut off the angle on a breakaway or something like that and try to follow a guy and, and follow his deke. But aside from that, like, you know, I'm not so good at doing a split. I'm not so good at, um, <laughs> you know, my, my edge work could use a lot of work. Um, but it, it is fascinating to watch. You know, I, I feel privileged as a Predators fan to watch like a goaltending tandem like Pecorine and Yusei Saros because um, you have two very different goaltenders who are equally, you know, accomplished in like, in what they're able to do, but completely different styles. You know, Pekka being such a tall human uh, and covering big the, man. Yep. <laughs> so the surface area of the net, you know, he has a certain way that he plays um, that's effective but also UC has a way of playing where, you know, he's not as tall as Pekka, but can cover the, uh, can cover a lot of ground based on his really quick feet and quick edge work and being able to, you know, cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time and see the ice really, you know, really well. So for me, um, you know, and I'm not playing, I'm, I'm playing in like, middle c men's league you know like <laughs> it's purely for the fun of it man that's all that matters yeah purely for the fun of sport for sure um you know and i do all right um you know today's game is so much different than it was when i first started uh watching hockey it's pretty incredible to see how um how the game on and off the ice is becoming you know radically different i mean we're having this conversation in the middle of all these coaching things uh, happening where like you know that tough old time hockey is kind of becoming like it's it's kind of being ushered out as an old guard and there's a total new school approach to um, to the sport which I think is good you know I mean I think there are elements of hockey that when I was growing up you know you're not going to see Scott Stevens hits uh, legally uh, in this in this day and age you know you're not going to see the hits that he put on Eric Lindros uh, straight to his chin you're not going to see those go undisciplined. Um, but when we saw them back then, they brought everybody out of their seat. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, you know, I uh, am I glad that there's there's uh, an emphasis on player safety and, and, you know, hits to the head? Absolutely. But I remember those really memorable moments when you could have a serious impact on the game. You know, like 
the Devils' uh, 2000 Stanley Cup run, you could you cannot ignore the fact of like what an impact Scott Stevens would have had on that team because all teams were trying to be aware of is Scott Stevens on the ice. And if he is, you would get the puck and then immediately want to just like dump it into the devil's end because you don't want to be caught with the puck when Scott Stevens was on the ice. Not in the neutral zone, that's for yeah. sure, anywhere. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I saw several of those hits in person. You know, like I, I saw a lot of that. And it was, there was no, they were no joke. Um, I remember watching the hit that he laid on Paul Correa in the Stanley Cup Finals, like on TV. And that stuff is, you know, it's dangerous. It's scary. Um, but it, it was the way that hockey was was played then. You know, um, you know, watching even even other teams, watching Ty Domi, watching Keith Kachuk, watching you know uh, uh, all these guys, Darcy, you know, Darcy Tucker, you know, all the all those kinds of uh, players. Um, it's different now. It's so much based on, you know, there's a lot of talk about how fast it is and how, you know, you're watching a player like Connor McDavid, a player like Connor McDavid didn't, ex- didn't exist um, in the nineties. So it's such a, a new way of, you know, players are really on kind of like constant watch, I guess. Cause back in the nineties, there wasn't social media where you could, you know, I suppose be having a conversation in the back of an Uber and and have it be recorded and stuff. I was there firsthand for that one. I wasn't in the Uber. I wasn't in Arizona when it happened, but I was there the day that the video dropped in Ottawa, and that was pretty wild, man. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there. I feel like that also translates to how players are, you know, behaving off ice and really, you know, you're not going for, you know, pregame beers or chicken wings or whatever. No. <laughs> You've got guys who are who are, you know playing Fortnite and shit. And, and, uh, you know, the, the, there's a lot of emphasis on preparing for this sport 24 seven. And, um, and I feel like that's benefited hockey for sure. Um, you know, as a fan of watching the game, uh, it's definitely elevated and turned the, you know, turned the sport into something completely different. Um, you know, changes from on, uh, equipment to, you know, to, to increase scoring opportunities and stuff that kind of stuff that kind of sucks for goalies um that always has when they try to you know impose restrictions i'm more of a fan of like i don't know i think there's more tension in a game when there's less offensive opportunities in a way like i i think i prefer low scoring games very goalie answer but it's like you know i i i like when a team has to work for it more um and you know you definitely get that more in in um uh in playoff hockey i feel like there's you know there's more low low scoring games in playoff hockey than than there is in the regular season but you know that's the way the game is is changing and you know i'm i'm hopeful that they're that they continue to you know protect players with regards to like you know now you see guys who are who are retiring who are having like severe impacts of like you know concussions and stuff like that it's a serious thing so, um, you know, I, I like the way that the game is changing and evolving, becoming a little bit more like fan interactive, um, becoming creative in ways where like, I don't think in the nineties you would have had a mascot like Gritty, but here we are. And Gritty's, <laughs> I grew up hating, hating, hating the Philadelphia Flyers. And now I have somewhat of like a soft spot for the Philadelphia Flyers. Cause I fucking love Gritty. You know? He's the man. We bonded last year. It was cool. Yeah. He signed my mask that had him on the back of it. Yeah, we're buddies. Yeah. 
so, not verbal buddies, but buddies. No, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, I, I think the you know uh, the sport, the league is in a, is in a great place. And as a fan, as somebody who's you know living in what I consider like I consider Nashville, and I've I've gone to a lot of different hockey markets. I've seen a lot of games and a lot of different barns. I can confidently say that Nashville is like it's one of the strongest hockey cities. Probably, you know, people never expected it to be a hockey city, but it for real is a hockey city. The players agree with you too. Players love playing there at home and on the road, and not just because it's a fun downtown. It's a fun arena to play in. Yeah, and and I think you know uh, people really rallied behind this team. Um, you know, the only two. We, we did we did just get an MLS team, um, but the you know the two major sports in in Nashville are you know uh, NFL football with with the Titans and and NHL hockey with the Predators and really like you go everywhere. In my estimation, you don't see much Titan stuff everywhere. You see gold fucking everywhere. And you know, growing up as somebody who's in the area, you know, in the tri-state area where like. I was kind of in the minority as a Devils fan. There were much, I was surrounded by much more Rangers fans, some Islanders fans, a lot of Flyers fans. And it was very like, I didn't feel like I was in that much of a hockey community. Here is like, basically every one of my friends locally is like a diehard Predators fan. And, and that's pretty great to, to see how much it's affected the, the community. Um, you know, you see a new market like Vegas and and seeing how um, I've been to a couple games in Vegas to see the Predators, um, two where the Preds lost and one where the Preds won. That was a great game. Um, but seeing how, you know, I, I love seeing, you know, newcomers to the sport really latch onto it, especially like, you know, with the tragedy that Vegas had endured um, right before the inaugural season to see like something so real and genuine and like, um, inspiring to latch onto, like the Vegas Golden Knights coming to, so a community could rally behind something, because it was such a vulnerable time in the city's history that it's like, if everybody can rally around something like a sport like hockey and support this team that ended up going to the Stanley Cup final in its inaugural season, that's phenomenal, you know, and that's where hockey like really changes lives and seeing the initiatives. Like I, I've even gotten. Um, to do stuff locally in Nashville with um, a program that I learned about through the Nashville Predators with uh, Best Buddies. Uh, it's an international organization that um, Roman Yossi and Pecorine do a lot of stuff with uh, Best Buddies. And so I reached out to them like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a local musician. I live in town. I don't know if I could like give drum lessons to, to anybody that's in this organization, but I'd love to be a part of what you do. And I've been really fortunate to do uh, some really great things with a charity like that. So, um, you know, I feel hockey's like really special like that. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that other sports are that um, impactful uh, with their communities and stuff. So living in Nashville and seeing how the sport has grown, um, especially here is pretty remarkable. It is amazing how much there is in common between touring around with music and hockey and being goalies from similar eras. Yeah, for real. And even even today, um, so uh, today the San Jose Sharks are in town playing uh, the Predators and we'll be going in the game. And I've actually struck up a friendship with, uh, with Aaron Dell from the San Jose Sharks. And um, we just saw them uh, warming up today. And, and, you know, he and I talk about the, you know, the similarities between their schedule and, and what we're doing. Cause you know, they're doing a lot of the same stuff, you know, like we'll play a show and then get right back in the bus or 
take a late night flight to a certain city or whatever. And it's the same for them, you know? And, and, uh, that's the thing that's like, that's great about what we do is that like, no matter what level it is, if you're, you know, if you're a band that's driving in all your separate cars or you're in a van or you're in a bus or you're in a fucking, you know, plane or whatever, like the grind of your commitment to the craft is always just the most important thing and the most intense thing. So, you know, there, I, I love being able to, to see the parallels between, you know, somebody who's so passionate about being a goaltender and myself being, a, you know, a passionate musician um, that like, it's rad to see that like the work never changes. You're always working as hard as, as humanly possible. And the fact that you can do it on a level um, and try to push yourself to perform at a certain level, um, you know, to try to try to be impactful, try to be, you know, try to be the best you can be in a game, try to make the best song that you can play the best show that you can, you know, it's always like a constantly evolving thing. So, you know, it's, it's really rad to, to connect with goaltenders such as yourself and, and, you know, people, you know, musicians, whatever, um, to, to share our experience of like, you know, as long as we always like share this passion, we're always kind of pushing forward in, in what we're doing, see where we end up next. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.